1987, this little curmudgeon turned 12 years old. And just as puberty and raging hormones start to turn his antenna away from transformers and more toward girls, his interest in rock and roll starts to peak as well. It wasn't surprising that I would reacquaint myself with my innate interest in music. As a little boy, I grew up to love and listen to both of my older brother's vinyl record collections, Led Zeppelin, Queen, Rush, ACDC, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, The Eagles, Elton John, even Boston. More on them in the next episode. All were fundamental touchstones of my formative years as an incubating music geek. However, in 1987, as a preteen entering junior high, it was the modern rock of the time that I gravitated to uh, for, if no other reason, than it was popular, and I was already conditioned to be into guitar music. In Miami, Florida, in 1987, the hip-slash-modern music spectrum for middle school or junior high school kids had a range of the following five groups. First, any and all of the commercial pop of the time. Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, George Michael, and whatever teen pop and or boy band was popular. I would grow into loving some of this music later on, but at the time it was a little too plain and square for my growing tastes. Also, for some reason, this was the soundtrack for the budding macho jocks and developing stuck-up snobby girls who, respectively, bullied and humiliated me. Fuck that. The popular hip-hop of the day, a genre which would take me another seven or eight years to fully understand and appreciate, was another one of these groups, and I would eventually love that, but mm, at the time, I wasn't into it. The third group was what at the time was called quote-unquote, Miami bass music. Basically, this was the American Southern regions, not just Miami's, version of Chicago's house music and Detroit's techno that was heating up dance clubs across the country. You probably know it if you've heard it, you know. Yeah, that kind of stuff. The people who listened to this music weren't far away from the pop crowd, and they also bullied and picked on me. Fuck that. The fourth group was a very small minority of pimply-faced, denim-wearing kids who worshipped at the thrash metal altar of Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax, all of whom were pretty underground at the time. Those kids were actually nice to me, but... This kind of metal was a little too extreme for me at the time. Then the fifth group, the more accessible kind of modern rock, i.e. glam metal or, ham, or hair metal, the kind of which was all over commercial rock radio and MTV at the time. Motley Crue, Van Halen, Poison, Twisted Sister, Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, and more Bon Jovi. Notice I also said Van Halen. 
Yes, I know at this time they had Sammy Hagar and they were involved in another musical direction, but their fan base and fan base's musical preferences remained the same. So it was into this latter category that I consciously delved, even though I instinctually knew this kind of rock was a little off. Even at my young age, I had the sense to know that this was by some measure inferior to the classic sounds I knew as a younger boy. But the call of tribalism that pre-adolescent peer pressure induces was strong. And off I went to borrow casual friends' cassette copies of Motley Crue, Poison, Iron Maiden, yikes, and, yes, Bon Jovi. I tried, man. I really tried. But then, one weekend in the evening in late 87... Something portentous happened. I was up late watching one of my favorite wrestling shows when a commercial for a 1-800-HOTLINE phone number came on. Back in the old days, kids, companies would air quote-unquote hotline commercials that would entice people to call a certain phone number and pay money. The amount would be deducted from your phone bill. And you would pay that money to get either some hot gossip celebrity information, enter a contest by dialing numbers corresponding to certain answers, or dial numbers for adult slash sex talk. This commercial was for a music trivia contest. If you answer correctly, you would win money. Hey! They had an example in this commercial where they played a short snippet of the chorus to Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. You know, I'm living on a prayer. And the speaker would say, dial one for Bon Jovi or two for you too. Even if I knew the answer, no way would I incur my strict mother's wrath by ringing up our phone charges. But the name of the alternative to Bon Jovi stuck with me. You too. What a weird name for a band. Later on, in early 1988, The Catholic school I went to would occasionally have a quote-unquote casual day in which instead of our regular school uniforms, we would be allowed to wear regular clothes as long as we weren't wearing shorts. There was this one kid, this one kid, the only kid in the entire school who, like the metalhead kids in the school, came in wearing blue jeans and a denim jacket that was decked out in patches over the sleeves and the back. But instead of metal band patches, Metallica, Megadeth, etc., it was all 100% U2 patches. A gigantic U2 patch on the back, U2 patches on the arm sleeves, and even U2 label pins, some of which were pictures of the individual band members. This weirdly named band had at least one super fan in my school. I won't say his name, but socially he was part of one of the cliques that tormented and bullied me. Every now and then, though, he would talk to me like a normal human being. My expressed interest in U2 that he was showcasing made him want to talk to me more. He wasn't the most articulate guy when it came to describing music. All he could do was say how awesome they were. Where are they from? Ireland. What do they sound like? Oh man, they rock. Are they thrash metal? No. Are they like 
Bon Jovi, meaning glam or hair metal? No. Are they punk rock? No. Are they an older classic rock band? No, they've only been around for a few years. Actually, a little less than a decade at this point, but he didn't know. It was around this time that I started actively and continuously listening to modern rock radio and coincidentally, or not coincidentally, becoming a little disenchanted with the style of rock that I had aligned myself with. But lo and behold, the more I listened, interspersed between sets of like 10 songs by shitty metal bands, a U2 song would pop up. And the kid was right. They did sound unlike anything that was on the radio at the time. Strikingly and startlingly so. They didn't have the formulaic macho cock rock posturing of the other seemingly popular bands at the time. There was an earnestness and an authenticity to them that imbued them with a genuine soulfulness. Although I couldn't articulate those exact words at the time, I could certainly feel it. They could rock pretty hard, but they were more accessible and not nearly as monotonous as the underground metal bands whose tapes were being bandied about during school lunchtime. I could detect a tasteful sensibility in them that was more in line with the classic rock records I grew up with, but they sounded absolutely nothing like Zeppelin or Beatles or any of their ilk. Every single one of their songs sounded different from each other, and it seemed like each song told a different story, delivered a different message, conveyed a different emotion. And that guitar sound by this dude called The Edge? What the hell was that? It was loud and all-encompassing, but it was chiming and crystalline and seemed to have a personality all its own. And this singer with the odd name of Bono, whose voice soared with the righteous power of a guy who said what he meant and meant what he said. Their lyrics also felt and sounded like they were about something, which was in stark contrast to the pop metal bullshit that I felt I was being force-fed at the time. I cannot stress this enough. I was 12 years old, going on 13. I had no idea what indie or alternative rock was, my mom refused to pay for cable TV at the time. I had no notion of college radio, even though I could have easily found the University of Miami's WVUM on the radio dial had I been directed. And I wouldn't discover punk rock until several years uh, later, during after, after my Nirvana grunge epiphany. And I wouldn't discover Bob Dylan until college. So for a kid like me, there were no reference points for a band like U2. Not only did they sound revolutionary and fascinating, they sounded right. For a kid like me, and for a kid like your other curmudgeon, Chris, who was my age at the time, they were freaking superheroes by comparison to what else was going on. It was soon after that meeting with the U2 fanboy that my listening loyalty shifted to the devouring of classic rock radio and all the splendor of 1960s and 70s rock. I would still go back to modern rock radio, though, to keep up with what was new. But really, it was to catch whatever U2 I could, along with another band I would soon discover called R.E.M. It was these two bands whose airplay on modern rock radio would keep me interested in the format for the next few years in spite of the endless slog of garbage glam metal, 
past their prime acts like Ozzy Osbourne, Alice Cooper, or Van Halen trying to be glam metal, and the endless saturation of Guns N' Roses. As far as you two are concerned, this was the beginning of a fandom that would continue in strong form, with both Chris and I being constant apologists for some of the band's biggest indulgences and egomaniacal tendencies for more than a decade before they became creatively bankrupt, corporatized to a shameful extent, and Bono's overall megalomania just getting too overbearing. Nevertheless, the past 20 years should not erase the long streak of timelessly brilliant songs, innovative sounds, and massively influential albums, even if you don't like the bands they've influenced, that they unleashed in the 18, 1980s and 90s. Yes, believe it or not, there was a 10 to 15 year span when you 2 were not only the biggest, most popular band in the world, they were arguably the best. That is why this podcast is bringing you this special edition and this special episode that asks the question, albeit in a very pithy manner, remember when you 2 didn't suck? If you were there, you should remember. If you're younger and you weren't, this is why you should know. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Now, as we record this episode, here is what U2 is up to. Uh, they've just begun a residency at a new venue in Las Vegas called The Sphere, which is a $2 billion, 160-square-foot monstrosity that uh, Wired.com describes as virtual reality-like immersiveness via a, quote, 160,000-square-foot, 16K by 16K LED display. From that same Wired.com piece comes this quote from The Edge, quote, the real breakthrough is in offering this immersive experience at scale with an audience that you're a part of. Rock and roll is a gathering of the tribes. There's a sociological aspect to it. The experience itself is completely different when you're there in the room with all these other fans. That's the thing that makes this so powerful. Ew. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all a grossly grand corporate spectacle and technology whoring session starring a band that long ago became a gross self-parody of grand corporate spectacle and technology whoring. This, yeah, I mean, yeah. this, this people is the vortex in which you two now resides. And it's a shame, really, isn't it, Arturo? Well, I mean, they are now in the nostalgia act phase. They're like the yes. Rolling Stones. That's what yes. they are now. You know, I, I'm sure the set list. Yeah, I know. I know uh, they're playing all of Octung Baby in its entirety. But aside from that, the set list is pretty much the hits. You yeah. Know? I mean, so. and that's the thing. And. Uh, you know, who knows? I mean, it it basically what they've become is they've become like, oh, we're we're so cool fodder for people who actually want to shell the four figures for the tickets to get into the venue. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just it's it, they're an advertisement. Yeah. And so yeah. it's it, it, it just makes me cringe. I mean, even if they are, you know, the, the little bit I've heard from YouTube, they sound great, but they're still. Sure. I'm sure it sounds know, great. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. they've but they've sold their souls to the devil. Uh McFisto is no longer now it's just the devil yeah McFisto the McFisto character from Zoo TV is no longer an ironic commentary <laughs> no 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 it is not and that is too bad but but 
But remember, this episode is about us uh, recalling a time when they did not suck. And so yes. we, we promise, folks, this will be a joyous romp through the good meat of you two. Uh, one of my favorite bands of all time. And basically, the, basically their 1980s and 90s output. <laughs> yes. Speaking of the speaking of the good old days, uh, you know where the good old days are the good new days, don't you? And the and the good old days remain good. Yes, the the good old days are still good, and they're they they have a fresh new car smell. Yes, we're talking about the parallel universe, folks. Uh, we have uh, crossed over from that rip in the space time continuum. And we're in the fields where rock is fertile and grows tall, uh, where uh, it still predominates, still on the billboard, still in the arenas. Uh, Taylor Swift, move over. Wilco are the are, are on the cover of Rolling Stone. Although, as we'll get into, uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But they are. <laughs> but but oh, on, on this side of the parallel universe, they are the Eagles, uh, and. Uh, we also have our own equivalent of a, a, a newfangled Emmy Lou Harris on this side that we must sure. uh, turn you uh, folks on to. And that's what Arturo is doing this week. Uh, a brand new album by a surprisingly great country singer. Uh, take it away. Yes. Yeah, this is a uh, Margot Silker with a C, not an S. And her second album uh, called Valley of Hearts Delight. And it is my delight to finally talk about an album from this year that isn't mediocre, disappointing, or a three-star meh. You know, uh, Margot yeah. Silker Margo Silker is originally from Santa Clara, California, but currently resides in rural Washington State and is married to a man who is an actual certified cowboy. <laughs> and the couple live on a ranch with their dog and several horses. If that isn't genuinely country enough, then there's Silker's music itself. I've read in some areas where she's been classified as Americana or alt-country or even indie folk. That's a load of bullshit. Yeah. This is pure, real country, the way it's supposed to sound, i.e. not corporate radio, red state, pop country. These are brilliantly written songs that run the gamut and range of country styles, from plaintive mid-tempo grooves to pedal-to-the-metal barroom stompers to aching tear-in-your-beer ballads to rollicking sing-alongs to even epic, expansive, highly lyrical anthems, the kind of which the late Robbie Robertson and the band were known for. It's all flawlessly executed by her crack band and beautifully sung by Silker herself with the heartfelt conviction of someone who has lived inside these songs. Key tracks, the powerful horn-driven Keep It On A Burner, the wonderful, hilarious cross-country travelogue I Remember Carolina, and the wistful heartstring pulling all tied together. This is a stone-cold, four out of five star album and is now and will probably remain in my top five albums of this year. Chris? Yeah, on first listen, I think it's headed there for my, myself as well. Uh, yeah, I'm also a big fan of Re I Remember Carolina. That is, yeah. uh, as travelogue songs go, uh, you know, it, it might not be in the John Prine uh, category, yeah. but, but it's close. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, she's she's definitely got that kind of California country rock uh, vibe to right. her, uh, right. but pure country. And you caught me at a good time with this because I have been in a Zach Bryan phase. <laughs> uh, we, we cannot talk about Zach Bryan in the parallel universe, considering that this year he's had a number one album and a number one single. 
a number one pop single on the Hot 100. Uh, But the guy is a brilliant songwriter and his self-titled record that he released in August is my number one album for the year so far. I have a feeling, though, that this album is going to slide in pretty high, uh, too, from from Margot Silker, because like you said, she's she's a bona fide country singer. She's this is uh, lyrically what country is supposed to be, which, you know, combines the tender with the tough and the goofy. You know, yeah. that, that, you know, country's supposed to have kind of a, a wink, wink, goofy side to it. And she's got that. But she's got, you know, some of the stuff about her family and her relationship with her mother is mm. really, really poignant. And um, yeah, she yeah. definitely she definitely has the goods. And like you said, she's married to an actual cowboy uh, <laughs> up there on a ranch in, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so you you can't you can't beat the uh, the authenticity. So I look forward to listening to this album more and uh, and really discovering it. I have a feeling it's going to keep growing and growing and growing on me. And uh, so that w- that brings us to a transition. Uh, you know what I don't think is going to grow on me? <laughs> the new Wilco album. The the new Wilco record. Uh, we made a reference to them that yes. Uh, some people uh, listening to this uh, podcast and, you know, if you're in our core audience, you might be wondering why we're talking about Wilco in a parallel universe. Uh, Arturo alluded to this last year when we covered their last record, uh, because in a world that was that was fair and just Wilco would be as big as the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they would be uh, they would be huge. Uh, they wouldn't just be catnip for nerds like uh, like us. Uh, they would uh, some of their stuff from like being there and Summer Teeth and uh, YHF. You know, YHF is one of those uh, is one of those hipster classics at this point. But it would. Be, By the way, YHF is Yankee Hotel Foxtrot for those yes, who don't know. <laughs> yes, Yankee. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, ta- I'm talking inside baseball. Thank you, uh, fact checking, cuz. Uh, <laughs> but it just uh, it it's a, kind of an intelligentsia hipster uh, classic, but it would be. It would be kind of like Frampton Comes Alive in yeah. a world that was just because it is that good. Uh, right. And so we cover Parallel Universe because we're kind of it's, it's a justice call. It's not so much a profile call. It's a justice call. Now, mm. that said, let's get into this piece of crap called Cousin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we talked them up as legends and now we're going to kind of uh, we're going to kind of cut them down. Uh, what a frustrating listen. Now, I mean, Wilco yeah. is a remarkable band one way or another. At their very best, they are remarkably potent and transcendent. And at their very worst, they are remarkably confounding and remarkably muddled. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they have spent most of the past 20 years towing closer to the latter line. And we find them once again in that remarkably confounding territory on their latest album, Cousin, which was just released in late September. Uh, Here's the first thing I'll say. The album sounds great. The energy is there. The noise art that, you know, that they've uh, dabbled in since Nels Klein has been in the band, art a guitarist, uh, is there. The moodiness of the band's best stuff is there, the inherent moodiness. But here's what isn't there. Decent songs. Yeah. Now, there is one song that I've decided I, I love and that I will talk up. And I, I would uh, strongly urge folks to go find it on the streaming services and YouTube. Uh, it's a it's a oddly psychedelic, slow burning countryish ballad called Pittsburgh, in which mm. band leader Jeff Tweedy sadly croons about outliving his dream as he travels from the airport in the rain. Otherwise, the album is a meandering, steaming pile of shit. 
that swing <laughs> that yeah it is it, it swings from cutesy over a range slop to wannabe chewing gum commercial jingles and back again it probably needs to be heard to actually be believed and ultimately cousin becomes something of a depressing listen because of that why uh, ultimately because it at time it evokes the two best records that wilco has released over the past 20 years namely 2004 as a ghost is born and 2011's The Whole Love, on which the noise had a purpose and helped shape and craft sets of moving rock songs. The latter of those, by the way, The Whole Love is, is one, I think, is one of the best five records of the 2010s. Uh, I would put it up there that strongly. Uh, so here, Tweedy and company are definitely not phoning it in. They are engaged and they are trying. And it certainly is more interesting than their past several albums. But the goods just aren't there, which just really sucks, doesn't it, Arturo? I disagree. I think they are phoning it in. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, Songwriting-wise, Tweedy, listen, this is the thing with Jeff Tweedy. Yeah, he's great. He's a great songwriter. You know, we, uh, he's, he's kind of, at this point, kind of be almost a under-the-radar rock legend. But he does have his phases where he phones it in, and he's just not trying his best with his songwriting, and he gets very complacent. Sky Blue Sky from 2007, Wilco, the album from 2009. That was their slump that they were in before the whole love in 2011 brought them out of it. They, with this album, Kate LeBon produced it. Uh, yeah. I'm not a fan of her music at all, but yeah. she, she did do a good job in producing this record. Oh, yeah. It's well-produced. There's some really good, subtle musicianship. Uh, there, there, there's some really uh, some good flares with the arrangements. But like you said, the goods. And when I talk, when I think of the goods, I think of the songwriting. Yes. Good, yes. arresting songs with melodies and hooks and good lyrics. The lyrics in this album are really bad. Tweety's really just not trying. He's phoning it in a lot. The songs are very plodding. They're meandering. They don't really go anywhere. They're monotonous. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give a quote. I still read allmusic.com. Yeah, All I do music. too. I, I do like Stephen Thomas Erlewine. It's his website, and he's a really good writer. But a an anonymous, not anonymous, but a, 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 a fan, a regular person, uh, gave a user review of this album and he kind of agrees he or she i'm not sure but i'm gonna assume it's a he gb Furson is the or fearson is the is the person's name and this is what he wrote and i think he really nails it one of the most unfortunate side effects of the streaming service age of music is the sense that there are simply too many songs too much music touching upon the same themes and subjects over and over until every possible expression becomes a trope or a motif. Visual art has escaped this, but musical art feels badly weighed down and cheapened by its over-accessibility and over-abundance. This is not Wilco's fault, of course, but to me, Cousin feels particularly unnecessary. The entire record feels like it could simply not exist, and the world would go on spinning without adjustment, as would Wilco's fame, popularity, and status. That's wow. pretty good. Yeah, that's, um, pro that's profound. Uh, he, yeah. He's, he, he's right about that, that there is something to be said for oversaturation. And uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to outdo yourself when there's, you know, basically when the, when the world is a fire hose. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders 
for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Remember when you 2 did not suck? Uh, we, <laughs> we do, and uh, we're going to uh, remind everybody why this band is still so revered and why they're the first band that people think of when they want to open up their new fancy toy in Vegas. Uh, Arturo, uh, let's start briefly uh, from the beginning before we launch into their golden period, which basically lasts 10 years. So right. uh, remind everybody how they started and then yeah. set us up. Yeah, you 2 started out as a teenage high school band in Dublin, Ireland in 1976. And they were literally the first band either of the four members was in when they decided to make a life out of music. From 1976 to 77, they were called Feedback. From 1977 to 78, they were The Hype the hype before finally settling on U2, combining the stealth aspects of the infamous spy plane from the early 1960s and a silly play on words. U2, get it? <laughs> uh, it took a couple of years of endless practice, endless gigging and endless record listening for them to formulate the sound that would be featured on their first album, Boy, which eventually came out in the fall of 1980 after an a representative from UK based Island Records signed them in the spring of that year, following up on the major hype the band were getting in the Irish music press and the glowing reviews their live shows in London had gotten from the previous year. If one had to really home in on what U2's early sound was, you can break it down to three core influences, Joy Division, Television, and Patti Smith. Yeah. They may have loved punk bands like the Ramones and the Clash and even played some of their songs in their early sets. But new wave and post-punk were really the stuff of which U2 was originally made. From Joy Division, you get Adam Clayton's slinky, loose bass lines and Larry Mullen Jr.'s snappy drum patterns. Bernard Sumner, Joy Division's guitarist, had some pretty innovative, somber tones to his guitar lines, and they certainly informed much of the Edge's early guitar playing. However, it was the swirling colors of television's guitars, particularly those of the late, great Tom Verlaine, that the Edge really assimilated and reproduced into his own, especially with the help of his echo pedal, otherwise known as a delay effects pedal, which is widely known now and widely used, but yeah, was pretty, back, pretty, back new, pretty new, yeah, pretty new back then, and yeah. helped make the Edge's guitar sound one of the most distinctive features of U2's early sound. The other, of course, was... Bono's vocals, which at least early on owed a great debt to Patti Smith. It wasn't just his searing earnestness and sensitivity that convinced listeners and connected with them. It was his shamanistic, charismatic intensity as a live performer that really made him stand out in a post-punk scene that was all about cool detachment and false modesty. The album, Boy, really sounds like what it is. A bunch of 19 to 20-year-old men, 20-year-old young men, trying to find their musical voice and place in the world, both musically and lyrically. Their sound is there if the, song, the songwriting totally isn't yet. 
except of course for the brilliant single I Will Follow, which was a major hit in their native Ireland, a moderate hit in the UK and Europe, and received considerable airplay on American college radio. The Edge's guitar is the knife edge that really cuts through the track, both as a timeless riff and an irresistibly catchy hook. Contrary to what a lot of people think, the lyrics to I Will Follow are not Christian lyrics about following Jesus. According to Bono, it's him singing the, from the point of view of the ghost of his deceased mother, who swears to follow her son's path wherever he goes. It's kind of creepy if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, They weren't big yet, but they were making a name for themselves in an underground rock cultish kind of sense. And cultish is the appropriate word for what was going on behind the scenes that nearly led to their breakup in 1981. Yeah. For a few years leading up to this point, the three Christian members of U2, Bono, The Edge, and Larry Mullen, found themselves associated with an extremist Christian cult called Shalom. What started as a prayer meeting, scripture reading group for a collective of high school teenagers got absorbed by this cult. And soon enough, the group had a hierarchy and rules and they got stricter and more intrusive and oppressive as time went by. Before judging these guys too harshly, keep in mind, they were barely in their 20s when yeah. this was going on. How many bad decisions did you make when you, the listener, when you were a teenager leading up to the age of 21? You know, enough. You, two, you two were no exception. Uh, yeah. Bono, The Edge, and Mullen found themselves forced into choosing between living the unrighteous life of being in a rock band and the supposedly righteous life of, quote-unquote, doing God's work. Thankfully, manager Paul McGinnis and the band's atheist bassist, Adam Clayton, <laughs> convinced the other three that they had commitments to their record label and their touring schedule, therefore their small but, small but significant road crew. Uh, uh, so, you know, the, 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 the cult... Christian group was ditched. U2 would continue as a band, but the aforementioned conflict would have a considerable effect on their follow-up album, October, released in the fall of 1981. The songs sound unfinished, uneven, and conflicted. And the overall lyrical theme of looking to God for help, even if it is questioning and slightly critical rather than being preachy and worshipful, is too ponderous and overbearing. However, the single Gloria is... Well, a glorious stab at bombastic anthem rock with the edges ever intriguing guitar lines leading the way for a song that's deceptively complex with Mullins shifting drum patterns throughout and funky break in the middle. It was another good size hit in the UK and Europe and received considerable airplay on the then nascent MTV in America. More importantly, though, it was as an awesome and powerful live band that you two were making their reputation with and fostering their growing cult following from. Now, if only they could make an album to match their live shows. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, yeah. any thoughts on early U2? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's pretty early on that, you know, there's, there's, and we'll talk about this. There's, there's a few themes that really just kind of uh, encapsulate and kind of define uh, U2's work. And uh, one of them shows up from the very beginning, which is hope. Uh, you know, one of the yeah. reasons I think that Bono annoys people so much is he may be the most hopeful rock star and <laughs> Edge may be the most hopeful player, guitar yeah. player in, right. in, all, in all of rock. It You know, uh, hope to the point of annoyance. 
And you, you do get that, you know, the boy, which is a well-named record, it, you know, does have that kind of, it's idealistic bombast as opposed to showy bombast, which right. they kind of got into by the end of the eighties. Uh, and a good call on, on Verlaine and that connection uh, because mm. of the effects pedals and the delayed effects, you, it, it's kind of, you, you wouldn't put it one-to-one -one with the, the Verlaine's tones, but yeah. the, but the playing style and the, and the, the, the inherent drama uh, are there. And yeah, you know, it, it is interesting that that whole thing about that, how the band almost got destroyed by a cult, which is ironic because they kind of became a cult in and of themselves, <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of, kind of worshipful of themselves. Uh, but yeah, it, it, they're the early catalog is more interesting in the sense of it's a, record of what they were before they became what they became and it's and we'll talk about this next the leap that they make from this early period where they're figuring out who they are in their early 20s to yeah. then becoming U2 you know they were they were a band called U2 but they weren't yet U2 yeah and you know they were sort of still kind of scratching and clawing for identity uh right. the only thing you could say is hope with an echoey guitar uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, up to this point and so then we get into uh we segue into 1983 and all and something remarkable happens doesn't it yes the breakthrough is what i call this by the time of the recording of their third album you two found themselves under pressure october didn't really build on the success of boy sales wise and it was critically panned. In fact, word started to spread that if the next record wasn't a hit, Island Records would drop the band from the label. Uh, Bono, The Edge, and Larry Mullen had left the Shalom cult behind and resolved whatever spiritual conflicts they may have had, strengthening the band's resolve and helping them focus on the fact that they needed to deliver the goods with album number three. Instead of inward introspection, Bono, not just the singer, but the band's lyricist and musical direction driving force, decided to look outward and found lyrical inspiration from both the sectarian conflict between Ireland and Northern Ireland, as well as the battles being waged in Eastern Europe at the time, you know, during the old Soviet bloc. Yeah. The band responded by making the toughest, roughest sounding music they had ever made at that point. They beefed up their anthemic arena-friendly take on angular post-punk, with the muscular, riff-heavy, heavily political album, War. The album cover pretty much says it all. The innocent young boy on the cover of Boy has now aged into an angry, battle-scarred preteen. With Bono's most direct and emotional lyrics, yet uh, The Edge's most explosive guitar riffs and the Clayton Mullen rhythm section's most bombastic grooves, the album put U2 on the mainstream rock map, graduating them to theaters and large concert halls across the world. Not only did they sound like an actual punk band for the first time ever, they started to dress the part with all black attire and boots, building on the confrontational aesthetic they coined as militant pacifism. They broke American rock radio with the Marshall-timed anti-war rocker Sunday Bloody Sunday, hammering in the point that one of Ireland's darkest days, the Bloody Sunday massacre of peaceful protesters by British troops in Northern Ireland, took place on a Sunday, a holy day for both Protestants and Catholics. 
New Year's Day was another huge radio hit with its sublime baseline and yearning for romantic connection in an apocalyptic time. The latter song went top 10 in the UK. The album War went to number one in the UK and top 10 in the US and throughout Europe. But just as importantly, the band announced themselves as socially conscious rock's heirs to The Clash. And Bono established himself as one of rock's preeminent socio-political commentators. Chris? Yeah, uh, this album is just uh, is just remarkable, uh, and, and especially compared to uh, to where uh, they were. Uh, and basically what I think the, the real breakthrough is uh, getting away. Uh, this album's not as beholden to the sounds of the English clubs. Uh, mm. It's not as beholden to the new wave. Uh, right. template that they were holding they were kind of finding their own song and their own beat uh just the uh, the interplay like that that rhythm section is so muscular yeah uh, as you said and uh and then the edge is also just kind of finding new uh new notes but i think that this is really bono's record i think that this is mm. bono that not only is he uh, steeped in hope that there's a lot of songs, there's, you know, it, denunciation of wars all over Europe and, and denunciation of uh, treatment of, of refugees and uh, just sort of the, the chaos uh, around everybody. But he has a real sense of hope and not only hope, but grace. Mm. And, uh, and that's another thing that really kind of defines this meaty part of the YouTube catalog is, there's a remarkable grace of seeing the humanity, even in the bad. So, you, you know, it's one of these things that you never look away from the bad, even while you're transcending toward the good. Yeah, uh, that there really is that. And like 40, I mean, makes that explicitly clear. I mean, yeah. to me, you know, that they ended their shows for years with 40. Yeah. Right. And uh, but just. You, you talk about, oh, yeah, this is a real this is a real stadium anthem. Quote, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my song. He lifts me up uh, out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I will sing. I will sing a new song. Uh, yeah, because that's because that's for lighters. I mean, yeah, that's so Bon Jovi right there. Uh, it's it, it, it's pretty. Yeah, but, but, he, but he but but Bono is not singing about pussy. That's the difference. No, no, he is not. He is not singing about pussy. And and then the second verse, when he says that you set my feet upon a rock, made my footsteps firm. Uh, that's as that's as Christian rescue as it gets. Yeah. And so uh, the great. So he ends this album called War about the uh, trying to find hope with war with the ultimate note of grace. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that that's just, uh, you know, even for even now. Uh, that that's just an extraordinary that's a really bold and brave statement mm. on which to end sure. a record uh, a, yeah. a, a, re a record with. All right. Now, next is the transition. Yes. Admittedly, you two could have gone the safe route and continued in war's bombastic rock direction, becoming kind of a post-punk Led Zeppelin. But give credit where credit is due. The members of the band did not feel comfortable in this sedentary role and felt the itch to change and more importantly, to expand their sound with sonic experimentalism. Enter producers Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir. Lenoir at the time was a young Canadian hotshot understudy to Eno, well, 
he's still Canadian, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Lenoir was, uh, he was a bit of a legend, even uh, Eno, I'm sorry, was a bit of a legend even at this time. He started out in the early 1970s as Roxy Music's onstage charismatic sound effects guy and transitioned from there into a solo career of a highly original and ambitious art rock and ambient electronica, yeah. all before producing seminal albums by David Bowie and Talking Heads that broke all kinds of ground with sonic innovation. Working with Eno and Lenoir, you 2 turned their sound inside out and upside down by creating eerie ambient soundscapes and providing the edges guitar sound with richer, warmer, more original textures by utilizing almost countless ways. An electronic bow to make the guitar sound like a violin, a slide guitar with echo, alternative tunings, a zero sustain quote unquote technique where yeah. the edge muted his strings across the bridge, processing his guitar through a harmonizer effects device that raises or lowers pitches, processing the guitar through various delay effects pedals and even an echo chamber all of which served to make the edge into a new kind of guitar hero for the 1980s and beyond. Yeah. The resulting sound on what became the Unforgettable Fire, released in the fall of 1984, could have alienated a lot of fans of U2 if it didn't have an ace in their pocket. And that was the anthemic arena rock single to beat all arena rock singles. Oh, yeah. The clarion call of pride in the name of love. Bono's heartfelt ode to Martin Luther King not only lit up audiences in concert, it lit up radio stations around the world, becoming the band's biggest hit to date. Number 33 in the U.S. Billboard uh, Top 40 pop chart, number three in the U.K. and the top 10 throughout Europe and Australia. Pride combined with the epic, powerful, album-oriented rock radio hit and anti-heroin ballad Bad, which would itself become one of U2's most beloved and iconic songs, vaulted the unforgettable fire to number one in the UK and Australia and the top 10 in the US and throughout Europe, catapulting the band into sports arenas around the world and setting them up for the imperial phase to come. Chris? Yeah, absolutely underrated record. Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That uh, you two, you know, when you have edge and you have that uh, that rhythm section, they're, I guess, genetically predisposed towards minimalism. Yeah. But so there is still some of that going on. But now with Eno and Lanwa, they're filling in the spaces and, right. you know, that the, they're, they're bringing in the grandeur. And mm -hmm. so you have the keys, you have those tunings, you have those new tones and that experimental uh, spirit. And so, yes, you have that anthemic rocker, which, by the way, is now at 234,524,400 plays on Spotify uh, <laughs> in pride, pride in the Name of Love. That song will always be awesome. Uh, uh, one, of, one of my favorite uh, bridges of any song of all time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With, uh, you know, that lovely humming from uh, Bono uh, accompanied right. by that kick-ass riff or that kick-ass. Like, I don't even know if you call it a solo. It's just like a lead line on loan from yeah. God yeah. <laughs> by, uh, by edge. And uh, so I guess it, it's still that, that maturation, you know, they moved away from the joy division stuff uh, with war, but it still had kind of almost a, almost like a Germanic uh, yeah. uh, disco technist to it but here. Now you're getting, you know, they're starting to find these soundscapes of like 
a, a, a distant unnamed land somewhere between heaven and purgatory. Mm-hmm, uh, right. And you kind of get that. And, and the thing, I like the ambition of the record, like stuff like wire and Indian summer sky, mm-hmm. uh, the latter of which is a great song. Uh, but even the stuff that's not really songs works like MLK is just this beautiful little uh, elegy. It's a snippet, right. but it's but it's beautiful yeah. and it's a great note on which to end the record. And so, you know, you have the uh, you, you have the triumphant tribute to, to MLK and then you have the elegy. And so right. it, it really works, uh, works well together. Uh, so, yeah, Inwan Lanwa is a team. Uh, the way that they produced these U2 records was always remarkable because those two, I guess, as a production crew, were kind of like fifth and sixth members of the band, mm. even though, yeah, you know, yeah, ju- just by being the kind of the gurus, they were the shamans and, and right. literally, as, as we'll get into in a little bit, literally the conductors yeah. that, that uh, drag U2 from good, from really goodness to true greatness. Right. So and that need- comes with the next one, the next yeah. album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I call this segment The Conquering. Uh, in July 1985, U2 were one of many huge names in popular music, performing at Live Aid, a multi-stadium venue benefit, multi-stadium venue benefit event for famine relief in Ethiopia. The band's iconic performance, highlighted by Bono's by now famous shtick of jumping into the crowd and dancing with select female members of the audience, helped make the band into a household name and sent their entire four-album catalog at the time back into the charts in many countries throughout the world. This period also marked a change in the band's reputation, and specifically Bono's, as being in the vanguard and possibly the absolute forefront of socially conscious, politically-minded rock bands. This created the context for the single-year journey Bono would undertake that would provide the basis for the lyrics and lyrical and musical themes for U2's next album. Consider what would happen from the fall of 1985 to the fall of 1986. Let's break it down. First, Bono and his wife traveled to Ethiopia, at the time one of the world's most impoverished, famine-stricken countries, as part of a volunteer group working in an orphanage that also serves as a feeding station. Just imagine the atrocities and the trauma-inducing tragedies one can witness just by being there. Oh, yeah. That is a moral, ethical education right there. No doubt. Next, Bono joined several artists on an album called Artists Against Apartheid, organized by Stephen Van Zant. Bruce Springsteen's sidekick in his E Street Band, to benefit political organizations opposed to South Africa's oppressive and malevolent right-wing apartheid regime, directly supported by Ronald Reagan's government in the U.S. That is a political education right there. Next, Bono visits the Rolling Stones while they are in the studio recording their new album, ostensibly there to serve as a guest in order to cool the tensions at the time between Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, Bono's professed ignorance of the blues and American roots music drives Richards to educate the U2 frontman by feeding him a steady diet of Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, Robert Johnson, and more. That is a musical education right there. Next, 
You two agree to join Peter Gabriel, Lou Reed, the police in their last performances together for the next 21 years, and several others in the Conspiracy of Hope Tour, a benefit tour to support Amnesty, and Inter Amnesty International, a still ongoing organization that provides funding for legal efforts to help political activists who have been wrongfully imprisoned. That's another global politics education right there. Finally, Bono and his wife accept the invitation of Sanctuary, an organization dedicated to helping peasant farmers caught in the crossfire of the Civil War going on in El Salvador at the time to fly in and help farmers and villagers who are being bombed and killed, mostly by right-wing government forces using artillery and weaponry supplied by, you guessed it, the United States. Bono is nearly killed by the hail of bullets and gunfire. Wow. That is a visceral global politics education. No right shit. There. No shit. Uh, it's, it's no wonder that a fascination with America emerged, which essentially came down to the duality of what America represented, the quote unquote dream of what America is supposed to be and sometimes is wide open spaces, multiculturalism, artistic richness versus the reality of the dark side of America, namely its cruel foreign policy and continuing issues with racism and intolerance. Combined with the band's general deepening interest in American roots music, blues, folk, and gospel in particular, U2's more mature and nuanced outlook on the world around them resulted in Bono's leap forward as a poetic lyricist and the band's leap forward in their musical development. With the music that would become the Joshua Tree, U2 augmented the experimental textures and sonic soundscapes of the Unforgettable Fire to the grounding power and the yearning soulfulness and authenticity of American roots music. The result was a masterpiece that conveyed an experience that was as widescreen and as cinematic as music listening could be, with expertly crafted songs of unpretentious gravity and poetic resonance that even to this day transcend, I think, the parameters of sheer rock and pop music. Once again, helmed in the studio by Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir, the album was released in March 1987 and was a global sensation, hitting number one in all the expected countries and many more worldwide, eventually selling well over 20 million copies. The timeless ballad, Wither Without You, and the driving gospel of I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For were worldwide chart-topping hits, while the epic, majestic, Where the Streets Have No Name was another worldwide hit single that raised the bar as to how to open an album. While U2 hit another level of commercial success with the Joshua Tree, catapulting them into being legitimate stadium rock status, it's the critical plaudits and praise that solidified the band status as one of the defining bands of the 1980s and possibly the defining band of their generation. Chris? Yeah, for sure. As far as the defining band of their generation, I think that this is sort of what uh, where they became uh, that that band. And this is where yeah. they stepped up into being the best band in the world for a five year streak. Right. Uh, Here's the thing. So we've talked about two predominant sort of strands, thematic strands that tie the U2 catalog together right. uh, already. There's hope and there's grace. And there's a third one that I think really uh, is really ripe and rich on uh, the Joshua tree, which is discovery. 
Mm-hmm. And Discovery has sort of two branches to it, wonder and terror. There's the, the excitement of Discovery. And uh, sometimes what you find is, is whimsical and exciting. And sometimes it's, uh, it's horrific and sad and, and causes grief. And so here, uh, the former category, you get in God's country which is, you know, really talking about uh, the spirituality of America and uh, the combination of, of American Christianity and uh, the landscapes and sort of yeah. the sort of the, the look and feel of that in America. And then you get Bullet the Blue Sky, which is about the horrors of American imperialism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Espe- yeah. Espe- you know, espe- especially on the border. Uh, right. and, and so, uh, so there's that, uh, you mentioned where the streets have no name. Uh, that's one of my favorite songs of all time. I think it's the greatest album opener, uh, ever. Uh, well, I don't I, Nirvana smells like teen spirit may have something to say about that. Yeah, that that's a close sec- that that's up there. But th- for me, for my money, this is the best. Uh, it's, it's a, an amazing song. Uh, and it's, it's got a, uh, an intro that's so complex and so intricate that literally when they were recording basic tracks, Daniel, uh, Daniel Lenoir had to go out there with a pointer <laughs> and, and literally conduct the band through it because they were struggling with capturing the arrangement. And so he literally conducted the band through, uh, through the intro. And so, which I I've always found kind of remarkable that they would even have the ambition and the balls to, to even attempt to write something or arrange something. Uh, right. You know, that, you know, that uh, soaring and it's a song about heaven uh, mm-hmm. and it, it it's there's very few songs. There's there's a handful of songs. There's probably about five or six songs that sometimes almost move me to tears just thinking about them. Yeah. And where the streets have no name is is one of those songs. Uh, and it you know, the idea is I want to I want to take you to a place high on a desert desert plane. Yeah. And this idea of let's transcend, you know, the crap that's going on on the ground and, you know, the, uh, you know, our, our love turning to rust and uh, all, all of the uh, all of the hecticness of the yeah. world. And, and let's go on that higher plane. And, and uh, you know, when I go there, I go there with you. It's all I can do. And yeah. I think anybody that's anybody ever lost anybody they love, uh, yeah. I encourage them to sit down with headphones, listen to the song with the lyrics in front of them and consider that, uh, that, that there's a journey going on and a journey to whether it's heaven or transcendence or to a place where it's all peace and no pain. Yeah. Uh, that's what that song embodies. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, We're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? you may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. 
We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. So where do you two go from here? They're the biggest yes. band in the world. They have, they're just, they're the shit. No, I, I, to this day, I still think the Joshua Tree is the best album of the 80s ahead of Michael Jackson and even Prince, but that's just my opinion. But anyway, next, the misunderstood misstep. Oh boy. Okay. The original idea for the movie that became Rattle and Hum was for it to be a low budget, low key, minimalist black and white affair that followed you two around on their tour for the Joshua Tree, capturing them in low key moments being themselves, occasionally reflecting on their newfound fame and status with up close live footage modestly, and the key word here is modestly, <laughs> interspersed throughout, with maybe four or five new U2 songs subtly introduced in the background during the everyday uh, life scenes. Basically, it was supposed to be a 1980s update of the cinema verite style documentary that D.A. Pennybaker made right. about Bob Dylan back in 1965 called Don't Look Back. More importantly, it was to be released independently by the band themselves and shown in select art house independent theaters in the U.S., U.K., and Europe. I had that work well, out. Yeah. Well, there's one person to blame for this, and it's none of the members of U2. The band's manager, Paul McGinnis, with his background uh, working, remember, before he was a, a U2's manager, he was an assistant for production managers in the British film industry. And he thought it was a good idea to think big, act big, be big. That is, make this documentary into a half documentary, half concert film that was as big as the Joshua Tree album and tour themselves. All of a sudden, the live footage became widescreen cinematic affairs that required twice as much camera equipment, twice as much manual labor, and naturally, a much higher production cost. Worst of all, the low-key scenes of the band members going about their regular touring life needed to be blown up in order to take up running time and give the impression of importance. The result, under, under the direction of young filmmaker Phil Juwanu, was you 2 being portrayed as a little too enamored with their own status and importance, in short, pompous and arrogant, much to the band's chagrin later on. Watch as you two go to Memphis and record a song in Sun Studios, the hollowed ground that gave us Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. Aren't you two worthy successors? Watch as you two visit a Harlem church in New York and have the church choir sing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Isn't it cool to see us to see a straight line from the blues and gospel to the heart and soul of you two? Yeah. Watch. As you two write a song for B.B. King and perform it live on stage in Fort Worth, Texas. Watch as B.B. King praises Bono's lyrics. Isn't Bono such a great songwriter? <laughs> I'm sure that isn't what Juanu or the band intended, but it certainly came across that way. It turns out the black and white aesthetic was the only thing left over from the film's original creative yeah. vision. The movie is not all garbage, though. 
the live performance scenes are often pretty breathtaking. And a scene where they play Sunday Bloody Sunday is incredibly raw and powerful and sincere, with the actual performance taking place shortly after another bombing in Northern Ireland that week. Because of the $5 million the band's operation incurred for making the film, releasing it as a small independent movie in select theaters was no longer a viable option. Enter Paramount Pictures, who wanted to get in on the U2 bandwagon and reimburse their $5 million in order to distribute the film to over 1,000 theaters in the U.S. and through all their affiliates in the U.K. and Europe. The film didn't do very well in the box office and was critically panned for the reasons I gave above, earning just $8 million compared to the $5 million Paramount that Paramount paid. However, the double album soundtrack, half live tracks, half brand new studio recordings, did very well, going five times platinum in the U.S. and multi-platinum in many countries throughout the world. The album got lukewarm reviews, mostly due to the live tracks, with Bono's grandstanding being a sticking point. Case in point, during a live version of the B-side Silver and Gold, Bono takes up the space in the song's middle section to give a speech about the horrors of South African apartheid before giving the instruction, okay, Edge, play the blues. Of course, the Edge goes on to play the most decidedly unbluesy solo imaginable. <laughs> this is clearly the kind of stuff that goes down much better in the context of the emotion and energy of a live setting rather yeah. than a live yeah. album. What gets lost, however, in all the hoopla surrounding Rattle and Hum is that the new songs they recorded in the studio for the project are absolutely incredible and stand as among the most emotional and powerful songs you two would ever produce. There is an amazing single album of original material buried within that would have been a worthy successor to The Joshua Tree. The album's lead-off single, Desire, is classic in its rollicking Bo Diddley beat and is arguably the rawest purest slice of rock and roll the band ever made. It went to number three in the U.S. Billboard chart and number one in the U.K. and several countries uh, throughout the world. Angel of Harlem is a lovely, languid R&B soul track that takes Bono's lyrical and moving ode to Billie Holiday and beefs it up with Memphis-style horns. That hit number 14 in the U.S. Billboard chart and went top 10 in the U.K. and around the world. Hawkmoon 269 takes the Bo Diddley beat and intensifies it with gospel fervor. God Part 2 is riveting, funky dance rock with one of the Edge's best riffs and is a precursor to the sound they would explore in a few years. And of course, there's the hit that should have been, All I Want Is You, yeah. Bono's ballad of devotion to his wife, who by now must have put up with quite a lot of shit from this guy. No shit. <laughs> a, sl a slow burning, momentum building beauty of emotional catharsis. It ends with an exquisite string arrangement by Van Dyke Parks, i.e. the guy who co-wrote Smile with Brian Wilson, yeah. and subtle keyboards by Ben Montench from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, never knew the that. Song, yeah, the song went to number four in the UK and the top 10 throughout Europe but it hit only 83 in the U.S. and only 67 in Canada. What the fuck? Yeah, seriously. Anyway, anyway, Chris, what say you of Rattle and Hum before I give my alternate versions track listing? 
Yeah, uh, Rattle and Hum is a little bit conflicting for me. I generally agree with you that the studio uh, stuff gets lost in a lot of the humdrum about the sort of this messianic uh, presentation of, of Bono and right. and the sort of the overdose of Americana uh, that's portrayed uh, in the movie and what was becoming apparent. There's a great quote that I uh, found that uh, Bono and I'm not exactly sure where this shows up, but he says, I put Catholic guilt to work pretty good for a rich rock star. <laughs> and I, I think that that's kind of what was going on at this period. It, it, he, he almost uh, was being presented as, as this sort of, like you said, you said the right word at the beginning of this uh, discussion, shamanistic. He was, yeah. he, he, he almost was becoming this, uh, not necessarily messianic figure, but definitely rabbinic. Uh, you know, and it was getting it was getting kind of annoying. And uh, and even, you know, one way or another, the band was starting to build monuments uh, to itself. Right. I, I don't know. I disagree with you slightly about calling the the the, the studio stuff incredible uh, desire. Yes. Angel of Harlem. Yes. All I want is you. Yes. God part two. Yes. But, you know, then they they do the Bo Diddley beat again on Hawk Moon 269 to nowhere near as good effect. Uh, I've never been a fan of When Love Comes to Town, because if you're going to write a song for B.B. King, why are you going to do something that corny? Uh, see, see, I, I like that song. I, I, I think it's snappy. I think it's a really good... It's the best song B.B. King had done in years at that point. Well, yeah, absolutely. It was a great great B.B. King solo. I mean, he he, he yeah. kicks ass on the solo, so I'll, I'll give him that. But yeah. I, I it, it's always kind of annoyed me. Uh, Love Rescue Me annoys me because that, you know, the, sor the story about that is you two, uh, Bono wakes up from a dream with a song in his head, but in the dream, Bob Dylan was singing it. So he calls up Dylan and says, hey, you want to co-write a song with me? <laughs> uh, and so that's their co-written song with Bob Dylan. And of course, this is in 1987, which what is around the time of like Knocked Out Loaded. Uh, yeah, D it, Dylan was in the middle of a serious shit slump at this time. Yeah, and so they're just laying on the love for the real America a little too thick uh, yeah. for me. But uh, the great stuff is truly, truly, truly great. I mean, All I Want Is You is one of my favorite songs by them. Uh, probably one of my 10 favorite songs uh, by you 2 And just uh, like you said, I know the, uh, the string, the outro is just gorgeous. And, yeah. you know, so as, as an album closers uh, go... There's only one album closer that's better uh, than that one in their catalog, and we'll we'll get to that shortly. Sure. But uh, but yeah, what a what a really it's a it's a an underrated record, but it's not it's by no means is is the the studio stuff roundly rousing and perfect. I think it's nearly perfect. Heartland is the only song I don't like. That that yeah. just sounds like a bad outtake from the Unforgettable Fire. <laughs> my my alternate uh, track listing of Rattle and Hum, slow fade in to Van Diemen's Land, and then oh, yeah. it fades out. No no uh, recording of Phil Juano interviewing you two. Straight to Desire. Straight to Hawk Moon two sixty nine. Straight to Angel of Harlem. Then Love Rescue Me. Then When Love Comes to Town. Then I guess Heartland because it is you know there. And then end it with God Part Two and All I Want Is You. Actually, yeah. I think Rattle and Hum the movie would have been better if it were just all live stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. If, if if they had just kept the studio stuff to the studio album, and yeah, yeah it, it's it's basically a case of and I've used this line several times in the history of uh, the Curmudgeon Rock Report. It's it's their ten pounds of shit in a five pound bag album. 
<laughs> it would yeah. it would have been better as two separate records. You know, have the live record and then have the well, studio no, 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 record. No, not a live record. Make the movie just all live. The, oh, uh, the, okay. Yeah, the movie all live performance, and then the album all studio tracks. That's it. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I think yeah that that might have worked, but I mean, I I think what what you just had there would have worked. I think that yeah, keeping a snippet of Van Diemen's Land, which is kind of I mean that's that's the Edge trying to to croon and not Edge stick to stick to the guitar, dude. <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, every now and then Edge can sing okay as long as he's doing backup vocals. Yeah. Anyway, so next the reinvention. As the 1990s began, U2 were still the biggest band in the world with Guns N' Roses and Bon Jovi, probably hot on their heels for that honor. But their critical standing had taken a big hit with the flawed execution of both the Rattle and Hum movie and album. What they needed was a drastic makeover in both sound and image. And boy, did they deliver on that. In fact, it was one of the most dramatic and successful makeovers in sound and image in pop music history. Oh, yeah. The band reunited with Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir. Jimmy Iovine produced Rattle and Home. And they retreated to Berlin to record in Hansa Studio, the very same studio where David Bowie recorded his groundbreaking, influential, legendary Berlin trilogy of late 1970s albums, Low, Heroes, and Lodger. The city of Berlin itself was going through a transitionary uh, period as the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, with the formerly East and West Germany uniting as one country for the first time since before the end of World War II. It turned out to be the perfect setting for U2's radical overhauling. A little over a year ago, this podcast produced a series called The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which covered the insane amount of classic music produced in the 1990s. This album was discussed in detail in the 1991 installment titled The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, 1991, Smells Like Revolution. Please seek it out whenever you, wherever you listen to podcasts. To recap, in the break after the Rattle and Hum tour in 1990, early 90, the members of U2 and most significantly The Edge changed their listening habits. Out went American Roots music, in came acid house infused dance rock of the kind coming out of the UK, industrial electronica, funk and electronic dance music. This thoroughly modern sensibility would inform the band's direction and instincts throughout the recordings in Berlin. And despite some creative rough, rough goings early on, the resulting album, Octung Baby, was a postmodern masterpiece of visionary art rock that, aside from being a colossal commercial success that went number one all over the world and sold over 18 million copies worldwide, saved U2's career and reputation for the next decade, putting them in the vanguard of innovative pop music. The singles were pretty awesome, too. Mysterious Ways, with its sleek wah-wah pedal guitar, is sublime dance floor funk rock that went number nine in the U.S. billboard, number one in Canada, and either top 10 or 20 throughout the U.K. and Europe. Even better than the real thing is updated glam rock transported from some 1970s planet, but given a psychedelic makeover 1990s style, hitting the top 20 in pop charts worldwide. 
Of course, there is the transcendent ballad one, Bono's moving desperate plea for togetherness that is altogether doomed and will be doomed. It is it is basically a breakup song. Yeah. Uh, and it's about a dying relationship. Uh, What's one of U2's greatest compositions and an enduring timeless pop standard on par with anything the Beatles ever did. It was a worldwide top 10 hit. Personally, I've always been partial to the uh, to the to the song "Until the End of the World." Yeah, me too. So, a song that pulls off the near impossible trick of rocking balls and being haunting as hell as well. Lyrically, it depicts a fictional conversation between Jesus Christ and Judas Iscariot. But make no mistake, this is not a Christian song in the traditional sense. There's anger, regret resentment, and even homoeroticism in Bono's little character vignette. Throw in everything I've said with the fact that the Edge completely overhauled his guitar sound to create sounds and textures never before heard on any rock album. And you have an album in Octung Baby that sounded like nothing that ever came before it, like nothing since, and one of the most singularly greatest albums of all time. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. If somebody out there ever asked me to submit a ballot for the 10 greatest albums ever made, Octone Baby would be on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an extraordinary accomplishment uh, of a record. And it's kind of funny that their most serious and uh, most mature uh, set of songs yeah. uh, gets a title that uh, is named after a throwaway joke from Mel Brooks, the producers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which always kind of cracks me up. Well, but. that that was the irony, like, like you two always said, like you know, we found our humor in Octung Baby, and yeah, it's true. But yeah. it's such a heavy, lyrically heavy record, though. Yeah, absolutely, and and humor. <laughs> and, and the quote that kind of sets it up uh, from a Rolling Stone profile, uh, Bono says, uh, "Quote: Rock and roll is ridiculous. It's absurd. In the past, you two was trying to duck that." Now we're wrapping around our arms around it and giving it a great big kiss. And so, <laughs> you know, this idea of, you know, using this ironic uh, detachment to uh, present, like you said, some really heady themes of loss and, uh, you know, ro- romantic uh, longing and uh, uh, desperation and uh things falling apart because you know you gotta remember this is you know europe at that time had a lot of tension uh politically uh as well but 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 this album it's it's a it's a really it's a a a melding of love songs and breakup songs and uh just real uh invocations of spirituality uh invocations of grief uh, Love is Blindness is another one of my favorites. And that's the album closer that I was referring to. Yeah, uh, just really extraordinary. I mean, that that essentially is blues uh, that you know, that that really counts as blues rock. And it just that, that song by I'm, I'm reading the book U2 by U2, which published in 2006. It's basically the band giving an oral history of themselves all four members plus the manager of uh, Paul McGinnis. Bono said that that song, Love is Blindless, Love, Love is Blindness, he wrote it on the piano and he submitted it. He wanted to give it to Nina Simone. Oh, wow. For her to, before he kept it for, for you too. He wanted to give that song to Nina Simone. So. Yeah, which which would make a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, just just uh, just sonically and, and some of the stuff that... Uh, Edge is doing a true true fact. Uh, he was influenced by Neil Young's work on Weld and Ark, 
and oh. that you know that kind of soaring guitar uh, minimalism and that kind of like that kind of gnarly uh like you said almost psychedelic sound uh some yeah. of that comes from neil young mm. uh so uh go figure on this episode we made an attempt to remind people of a time when you two didn't suck for the next episode we are officially going back to our In Defense Of series to examine one of the most critically dismissed bands ever and one of the most unpopular among younger generations of rock fans, Boston. Yeah, did you get a creepy shiver as you heard that? <laughs> so do a lot of O2 cool hipsters and certain music fans of a younger stock when they hear that name. Pompous bloated 1970s arena rock of the most indulgent and ludicrous proportions with a ridiculous band logo and a lead singer with an even more ridiculous afro haircut and high-pitched voice. But we are not here to badmouth the late Brad Delp. On the contrary, we aim to heap praise on a debut album whose eight songs, every single one of them, is a staple of any classic rock radio station, terrestrial or satellite, that still grooves to the 1970s. Sometimes, when an album of macho cock rock elevated to epic grandiosity sells 17 million copies in the U.S. alone, the general consensus may just be right. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you In Defense of... Boston's Boston. Yes, really. Next, The Exploration. From 1992 through 93, U2 embarked on their groundbreaking, visionary Zoo TV tour. It's one of the most important and influential visual spectacles ever produced within the parameters of the concert going experience. Please check out our episode. It's actually episode number 33 of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, the fourth golden age of rock in 1992. Take the power back. Listen to that for Chris's excellent breakdown of that tour. Now, we're going to talk about what came after Octone Baby. During the North American stadium leg of the 92 tour, U2 took intermittent breaks in the tour to go into the studio, and but they really focused on it in early 1993 when they were getting ready for the European leg of the stadium tour. And they went in to record an EP to be released in 93 before the European and Australian stadium legs of uh, that marathon Zoo TV tour. It turns out the band was on a creative peak following both the masterpiece that was Octung Baby and the energy they had accumulated from touring. The EP ended up being their eighth studio album called Zuropa, released in the spring of 1993, and it picked up where Octung Baby left off, upping the ante for sonic experimentalism and, and experimentation and pushing boundaries. 30 years after its release, one marvels at how ballsy and courageous it was for U2 to release such an album at the peak of their popularity as Zuropa charted number one all over the world. Never before and never since has the band sounded so reckless and eager to stretch out into the great beyond and dive into the deepest waters. The lead single, Numb, 
is pure art rock excess in the best way, with the edges, spoken word vocals guiding a two-note industrial guitar riff and Larry Mullins drumming doing its best impression of a drum machine. Bono's falsetto vocals hover over the whole thing like a malevolent ghost. Uh, Lemon is pure Euro trash disco, which works because number one, it's catchy as fuck. And number two, it fits perfectly within the context of the album, whose themes were inspired by the theme of the Zoo TV tour itself. It being mass media saturation and its dehumanizing effects. Lemon is pure, unadulterated, cheesy, over-the-top, conscious-free pleasure. It isn't good for you, but you can't resist it, can you? That kind of thing. Uh, The dirty funk of Daddy's Gonna Pay For Your Crashed Car is one of pop music's greatest and most underrated treatises on class and privilege, and Babyface is delectable R&B disguised as decadent Europop with a fascinating character sketch of sexual detachment. The real thing hurts too much emotionally, so pornography is the way the character is the only way the character can get himself off. I rank it number four in the pantheon of U2 albums, and it's a near masterpiece that would be would have been perfect if not for the dreary Johnny Cash collaboration in the end. But Chris, you've always been a bigger fan of that song. Yeah, bullshit. The the Wanderer is the best song on the record. Oh bullshit! Uh, Get out of here. It's the one that doesn't belong. No, it, it it actually is the one that like brings the album home towards being a near masterpiece. Uh, yeah, we'll always disagree on that point. Uh, this album is is brilliant. It's uh, basically it's an album about uncertainty and about anxiety over a changing world, about a changing society, about changing technology, and about trying to find meaning in a world that's where meaning is becoming diffuse and more right. hard to find. Uh, and I think that's what really kind of uh, separates it out. I think that the, the two songs, I, if there's two poles for the record for me, there's the first time, which is the uh, which is a song basically about the prodigal son deciding not to come home. I mean, yeah. talk, talk about uncertainty. <laughs> you know, he decides yeah. to stay defiant. And then the wanderer, which is about as ecclesiastical as it gets uh, in terms of. It's it's the atomic cowboy song. It's uh you know the the cowboy wandering the streets trying to to find meaning uh, in a world that's been basically incinerated, <laughs> <laughs> and and the way that Johnny Cash sings it and the lyric, you know, I went out walking with a Bible and a gun, uh, <laughs> and just sort of playing that character and having Johnny Cash sing that song is absolutely inspired. Uh, it really is, but. At just the fact that you said it is a really, really brave record because they took on that changing Europe. And yeah. because remember, that was at the height of the Sarajevo uh, conflict right. the, uh, of the, right. the, uh, the Bosnian genocide. Uh, and so there was just a lot going on in the world. And for them to capture that. And remember, I talk about Zeropa. We did a, 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 a bonus episode called The Muses of Muse. Yeah. Uh, late late last year, and I kind of did a review of, of Zuropa. Uh, one of the amazing things about that record is the way they recorded it is because they were late in getting it done. That yeah. the idea was to they the goal was to get it done before they went and did the European leg of of uh, Zoo TV, yeah. but they didn't quite make it. And so what they would do is they would go do a show in like Rome, 
And then yeah. they would take a flight back to Dublin and do recording and do mixing and, and overdubs or whatever. Then go back out on a plane and maybe hit like, oh, hell, I don't know, Belgrade. Or I'm just I'm just making shit up and then do that show and then fly back to Dublin. And they did that for like two weeks or three weeks. And they they must have been tired as hell after that. And so the fact that they're basically doing this in a whirlwind of creativity, but also a whirlwind of exhaustion is is pretty impressive. Uh, I got I got to say. So uh, it's one of the it it is the single most underrated uh, Zeropa record. It belongs. You too, right? What what did I say? The single most underrated Zuropa record. Well, well, yeah, well, that yeah, well, there, there's no doubt that it's the most underrated Zuropa record, uh, but it's the most underrated U two record. Uh, I yeah. would definitely, I put it either third or fourth. Uh, I have from, it fourth. I, I, my my hierarchy is Joshua Tree, Octung Baby, War Zuropa. That's how. Yeah, I my, mine would be Octung Baby, uh, Joshua Tree. And then, depending on the day, uh, war or and Zeropa or Zeropa and war. <laughs> so, 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 so we have the same four. <laughs> yeah, we have the same four. It's just uh, yeah. the the order is is is, is slightly different. So, yeah, uh, yeah um, I'm 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 definitely enthusiastic about Zeropa. It's a fascinating record. Uh, it's one that I listen to every couple of years just to remind myself of how fascinating it is. All right, now next, the incomplete near masterwork. For most of 1996, U2 worked on the album that would become pop. They had the tour all set up, whereas the visual spectacle of Zoo TV was a commentary on the numbing effects of mass media saturation. The Pop Mart tour was to be a very, very ironic commentary on the numbing effects of the combination of commercialism and consumerism. It was to be a massive stage production. Unfortunately, the tour was more worked out than the accompanying album. You two are a band that are notoriously, uh, they, they notoriously labor for yeah. lengthy periods of time over their albums. And the process was proving especially true for pop, which eventually came out in the spring of 1997. They were forced to complete the record before they were really ready to finish it because of the fixed schedule of the tour. While the album suffered a bit from the time crunch, especially in the flow and the sequencing of the record and how it mellows out toward the end. However, pop is by no means a dud and nor is it a turd in the U2 canon like a lot of people think. In fact, it's quite underrated and the passage of time has been quite kind to most of it. The album was intended to be a full-blown excursion into electronica and the kind of dance-oriented techno that was big at the time. But even though the techno rock ended up being limited to just the first half of the album, what survived from the fraught sessions was quite excellent, actually. Despite the cheesy video for Discotech, which sees the members <laughs> of U2 dressed up people. and dancing, dancing like the village people, uh, the song itself is a magnificent slice of dance rock with the edges uh, utilizing a wide palette of distorted and processed guitars to mesmerizing effect. Do You Feel Loved rides one of the greatest bass lines Adam Clayton ever came up with to disco rock heaven. Mofo blasts out of the speakers like the full-on fusion of techno and rock that it is. The influence of the Chemical Brothers is clear from the outset. Even if the album slows down as it progresses, the songs are still strong enough that they hold the album up. 
Miami is the kind of trashy, damaged art pop that would have fit perfectly on Zeropa and adds an intriguing color to pop. If you wear that velvet dress continues on the ambient soul groove they discovered on the Passengers album and gives it an exquisite haunting beauty. The album ends on a dour note with the clunky wake up dead man, but it should have ended with the previous song, the yearning yet tension filled please, where Bono delivers some of his most sincerely emotional singing and moving lyrics. The album's overall theme of looking for God in a godless world may seem to some as a little too much Christian rock hubris, but historically with U2, Christian themes and even content are always delivered with more questioning and more doubt than blind devotion. That's what's always separated U2 from crapola-like creed. <laughs> anyway... Yeah. The album went number one in 35 different countries. By this point, anything U2 released would go straight to number one. Initial sales and even critical reviews were strong at first, but after only a few weeks, the album plummeted down the charts in a way previous U2 albums hadn't, as did the album's critical standing. The pressure to finish the album meant the band couldn't rehearse effectively for the upcoming tour. Uh, the first few weeks of shows suffered as a result. Regardless, the, the enormity and, frankly, campy nature of the Pop Mart tour setup was unappealing to a lot of fans in North America. In both North American legs and shows all played in outdoor stadiums, the vast majority of shows were not sold out, yeah. many of which drawing just enough to fill an indoor arena. Throughout Europe, South America, and Australia, and New Zealand, however, the tour did much better and sold out. Nevertheless, the failure in North America of both the album and the tour stung the band's pride and their wallets really hard. Uh, yeah. This instigated a much more conservative, pared-down approach to their next album, as well as a more modest presentation for smaller venues on their next tour. But as far as pop is concerned, no, it isn't perfect. But it could have been if the band had more time. I blame the producers Flood and Howie B for not cracking the whip harder as Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir used to. Chris? Yeah, I, I guess I agree with that. The album's not that well mixed, uh, and that and that's where it kind of suffers. It's not that well sequenced, and it's not that well mixed, but it does have its strong... It's a great half a record, yeah. uh, and I've always been a fan of If God Will Send His Angels, too. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a great song. Uh, it just... Uh, Pop, like you said, it, it kind of suffers that they were an ambitious band, and I think they got a little too ambitious for their own good. It's a breathtakingly risky album, yeah. and the tour is breathtakingly risky too, but they bit off more than they can chew. And like you said, they almost went broke, and yeah. because of that, they got humbled, and they got yeah. humbled badly. And uh, that that's what uh, you know kind of presages and uh really kind of sets up the next 20 something years of their records mm. where uh the the, the risk-taking had to take a back seat to actually like succeeding commercially mm -hmm. uh, which is too bad because man could you imagine them building off of stuff like mofo or, <laughs> yeah. or like or like last night on earth yeah. uh or even miami a uh, big fan yeah. of miami uh, like building on stuff like that, like where would they have taken it? Uh, and mm. granted, we wouldn't have got Beautiful Day or City of Blinding Lights or any of some of those great anthemic uh, songs that they did over the next like five or six years after this. But uh, I would have much rather seen the experimental U2 that wasn't afraid to fail. 
Yeah. I mean, we're going to get into this very briefly, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I think pop, I like a lot of the songs on it. I just think I it just wasn't, it wasn't completed. There are two or three clunkers on it, but it wasn't completed. Like you said, it, it wasn't mixed that great. It, it just, it just needed more time. And like I said, I think this is an album that kind of needed Eno and Lenoir because those guys really yeah. pushed and they were disciplined. disciplined. They yeah. disciplined you too. Uh, Howie B and Flood weren't that, and uh, and the album the album suffered as a result because of that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Notice uh, uh, the beginning of a, if you look at the set lists, the Pop Mart tour is very heavy on songs from pop. By the end of the tour, they were only playing two or three songs from pop, and it became yeah. a greatest set. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they, they smartened up because, you know, the reception was so lukewarm. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that really was a disaster. And, hey, there's another plug for our uh, fourth Golden Age of Rock series. I covered yeah. uh, the pop tour in the 1997 episode. Yep. The, the yep. perfect the perfect drug. Yeah. Uh, yep. yep. 1997, the perfect drug. Uh, so, basically, folks, just go out and check out all of our gold, fourth Golden Age of Rock series. It's 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 one of the finest series you'll find on the '90s. Awesome, baby, awesome. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. So so very briefly, what happened? Uh, where where did you two go in the 21st century? Well, they made a comeback record in 2000 with all that you can't leave behind. It was very successful. I think it's a great half record. It's front loaded with really good, tight, concise. Not so experimental, not so risky, just straightforward pop songs. Uh, the second half kind of falls apart for me. I hate the song New York. I think yeah. the last couple of tracks are just really shitty. It's, it's, just, it's just schmaltzy and corny. But the first half is really good. And then from How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb onward, I think you two have been a complete shower of shit. Um, they're not politically, but musically, they've been too, way too conservative, way too bland, way too safe um the 2009 album no lines on the horizon no songs on the horizon is what it should have been called <laughs> it's just really <laughs> shitty and yeah. in 2014 they pissed a lot of people off when they're oh, with piece that, of the, the ipod stuff yeah the yeah, with the, stamp? yeah with itunes what they did is that uh they put out an album called songs of innocence and really bad it's, it's, it's just it's just you two at their songwriting nadir and what they did, they made a, a deal with Apple in which the album would automatically load into anyone who's using iTunes. And it really backfired on them in a PR sense. You know, it, nobody asked to have the, the, the new U2 album forced into their iTunes. Yeah. It really, they had to apologize for that. And they did. They did apologize for it. And they kind of backtracked a little bit. And they said, I remember reading one interview in 2014, 2015, when Bono's saying like, well, you know, I mean, think of it. You know, it's just like, a, you know, it's like Santa Claus giving away free gifts. What's wrong with that? Well, no, the problem, Bono, is that children ask Santa Claus for gifts. No one yeah. asks you for your shitty new album. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> if, the, if the album was actually good, it might not have been a problem. Songs of <laughs> Impotence. Yeah, pretty much. It should have been called. There is one great song. On, I can't remember the name of it, but there's like one great song on it towards the render of the record. The rest of it is just horseshit. Yeah. Total horseshit. And I will say this, like, uh, I'm a big fan of how to dismantle an atomic bomb as far as being a throwback record. It's kind of, you know, let's go back to simple and the kind of. Uh, but they, felt, they, felt, did, they did that with all that you can't leave behind. Yeah. That's, and the, and that, then that's they, what that album is. And then they did it better. Uh, for the, oh you know, no! Overall, way. 
the oh, only oh, song on. the only song on, on how to dismantle atomic bomb that i like is the first song the single where they ripped off sonic youth's riff <laughs> yeah well I, <laughs> that's I, I the love, only one i love that yeah. song i love city of blinding lights i love yahweh uh yahweh mm. is one of the most moving songs in the entire youtube catalog so yeah I'm, I'm a big fan of that record but yeah after that i mean yeah no songs on the horizon uh, it's, it's pretty much a perfect name for that. Uh, yeah, they, they really did go downhill and they, they've been, you know, uh, they, they've been phoning it in. Basically, they've been corporate whores, like I said at the beginning of this yeah. episode. And I, I think that, you know, to, you know, to go into our next thing, that is exactly why they've fallen out of favorite younger generations of rock pop fans. Because yeah. when, when people think of corporate whoring in rock, yeah, uh, you know, hey, the Rolling Stones have gotten knocked off that mantle. It's you too now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And of course, now they're like, you know, they're they're approaching Social Security age or I think they're at Social Security age now. And so yeah. so they're kind of, you know, sad old, you know, nostalgia rock. And, yeah, that's, that's, again, what they do, that's what they're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're effectively they're, they're, they're kind of like the equivalent of like Las Vegas greeters now. They're, yeah. gre they're greeting people to like brand new, like excessive, like over the top venues in Las yeah. Vegas. They're, they're, they're the tourism bureau for Las Vegas right now. <laughs> Pretty sad. Uh, so sad from what they what they used to be. But you can always go back and listen to their hot streak when they were the biggest and best band in the world. It was about a good definitely 10 years. I would say maybe 15. Um, stretch it out because yeah. I, I, I have a lot of sentiment for what pop could have been. And, yeah. um, and I do like the first half of all that you can't leave behind. And that's it. Yeah. I, after that, I give up on you too after that. Yeah, yeah, I kind of do too. But just remember through that whole thing, the three words to come away with uh, from this uh, retrospective on you too, hope, grace, and discovery. Uh, yeah. That's what they really delved in. And they, they, they really did those three things thematically and musically better than any band ever. The only yeah. one that would approach them, at least on hope, is the Beatles. Right. Uh, nobody touches them on Grace and nobody touches them on Discovery. Although Discovery, I guess REM is kind of in the ballpark. But, yes. uh, but Hope, Grace, Discovery. Take no Grace with REM because those guys, you know, four atheists who. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't have that. They don't have that religious backbone, you know? Yeah, a, a, absolutely. So uh, there, there you go, folks. Uh, there is your. Uh, uh, remember when you two didn't suck? Yeah, they used to not suck, and they used to be both of our favorite bands. And without them, we, uh, life might have come out very, very differently, as in to say, we might not actually be here. And in my case, yeah. that might actually be true. I don't know about you, but I might not be here if it wasn't for you, too. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't. Uh, they're the ones that kept me in, in, the, in the late 1980s. They kept me so on the thread of interest in modern rock when, when yeah. everything else was so bad. And then I discovered grunge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them and Nirvana helped keep me sane. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll definitely say that. And uh, speaking of staying sane, uh, as we do at the end of these episodes, we encourage everybody to join our wonderful and glorious curmudgeon loop community on facebook where arturo just posted his 1998 uh 1988 list yes. of the greatest studio albums according to arturo which is always an interesting uh, romp for what it's worth best album of the 80s appetite for destruction uh, no way no no way. yeah we'll no always way. disagree on that point appetite for destruction baby anyway uh, join us there at facebook.com slash groups 
slash curmudgeon rock and uh, mirth and merriment will have be had by all and invite your friends too uh it's it, it's a it's a rocking party uh if you have anything to say about uh, you too or if you think we're full of crap or if you love us uh write us fan mail at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com and finally you can catch us still on x or twitter or whatever the hell elon musk wants to call it uh it's still and an, it's certainly an interesting place it sucks more than it used to but it's certainly interesting and then, yeah, maybe we'll get around to doing a Spotify playlist on this, uh, this album, too. And we'll, we'll give you all the U2 that you can handle from their golden age. <laughs>